the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a latitudinal correction triangulating off the Big Rock Candy Mountain and the peaks of Kong, hardcovers migrating in thundering June herds, and part nine of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time, Bain associate editor Laura Haywood Corey interviews Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon on their new Ring of Fire alternate history series entry, 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. This one is out in hardcover in June at booksellers everywhere. And we continue our complete serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. Hey, June is going to be a great month for New Bane Books. We've got all manner of good things, don't we, Laura? We do indeed. First up is 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies, which, as you might guess, is a new Ring of Fire novel from Eric Flint and Chuck Gannon. Chuck actually just won the Compton Crook Award for his first novel, Fire with Fire, and that sequel is going to be out this summer, right? Yeah, what is it called? Trial by Fire, mm-hmm. it will be called. Also in June is Rescue Mode from Ben Bova and Les Johnson. This one is really a lot of fun. It's a manned expedition to Mars. Goes out, and about halfway there, bam, a fist-sized rock hits them. There's absolutely no help on the way. They're out there on their own uh, trying to survive. Meanwhile, on Earth, all these nasty politicians are trying not only to shut the program down, but right off the, the whole Mars crew. Yet the Mars crew has no intention of giving up, and there there are some really heroic leaders on Earth who will do everything that they can to bring them home as well. And it's, it's a really great twisty and turny story with lots of great science, because we have some great science writers uh, that uh, put it together. Les Johnson is a NASA scientist, uh, as many of you know. And Ben Bova is the longtime president of the National Space Society. I think he's president emeritus now. So check this one out. And also in June is The Sea of Time by P.C. Hodgell. And this is a new novel in her Kinserath epic fantasy series, sequel to Honor's Paradox. Jame is back, and this time she's a stranger in a very strange land as she travels south to the city of Kulthafir. Yeah, we have an um, interview with Pat Hodgell coming uh, in a very near future podcast. If you like high fantasy, you've got to be a fan of world building. And Pat Hodgell's world of Rathilian is this enormous tapestry of a place with all kinds of imaginative stuff. Carnivorous unicorn-like creatures. Um, they are not at all nice. No. Uh, migrating herds of trees also can be dangerous. A lot of walking gods you don't want to get on the wrong side of. And there's much more. It's a a tapestry-like book, I would I would call it. Really great high fantasy. So, June new offerings from Bain, The Sea of Time, Rescue Mode, and 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. They're all at booksellers everywhere. And at ebookbain, ebooks.com. Eric Flint is a multiple New York Times bestselling author. 
Eric is best known for his Ring of Fire series of alternate history stories. They revolve around a West Virginia mining town, Grantville, that's thrown back in time and into the midst of Europe in the year 1632. Eric is also known for his Belisarius series and many others, including many science fiction novels. Before he became a full-time writer, Eric was a longtime labor union activist and has a master's in history. Charles E. Gannon is the Compton Crook award-winning author of science fiction novel Fire with Fire and its upcoming sequel, Trial by Fire. With Eric Flint, he's the author of 1635, Papal Stakes, and with Steve White, he co-wrote Starfire novel Extremis. Eric and Chuck join Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey to talk about the new Ring of Fire novel, 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. All right, the first thing I have to ask you guys both is, did either of you ever think about going to do some on-location research? But, honey, we have to go on a Caribbean cruise. It's for the novel. Oh, you are so behind the times. By the time we got around writing a novel, I had spent a week in Grenada, <laughs> um, the St. Martin, Bahamas, you know, the, several times in the Keys. So, you know, yeah, of course. Uh uh, that goes without saying. You get a tax write-off for that, right? It's business, right? Yeah, 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 of course. More seriously, I always try to go wherever it is I'm going to be writing a story, which is kind of, it's a little weird, because more often than not, I might spend several days someplace, and with a few exceptions, uh, big one being Tower of London, which I actually used, but for the most part, Honestly, very little of a story is, uh, of what I see is going to make its way into the text. The main reason I do it is really just because I feel better. Uh, part of what happens is these places aren't this, don't look the same anymore, usually. Um, you can go to parts of the United States, for instance, which I, because a lot of my novels are set in different parts of the United States, and the problem is that, that the, you know, the topography won't change much, but... Um, the vegetation will be completely different. Um, I mean, completely different. Um, so you can't really assume that what you're looking at is really going to be much of anything. Um, but I like to do it anyway because I just, uh, psychologically, just makes me feel a lot better when I'm writing. Uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's the way it is. Now, for me, um, I actually had gone to, I'm very familiar with St. Kitts. Uh, it's probably been four times. Uh, my wife and I, uh, uh, we did our vows there in 2004. Uh, as a matter of fact, in plain sight, I was on the northern end of uh, St. Kitts. We were in plain sight of the, uh, of the mountain upon which the radio is uh, put, Stacia, the quilt. Um, and the thing about St. Stacia is Stacia has not been developed as much as some of the others. Um, and was never very heavily vegetated to begin with because you have it's a saddle back it's a saddle shaped island. And the part that is mostly that, that that most people will go to is the is the low part of the saddle, which is extremely windswept. So it was never very heavily vegetated. And you can see from the uh, the sort of the the how they used to do maps in the seventeen hundreds where which were at least as much pleased the eye as to be useful for uh, for navigational purposes, uh either on land or sea. And uh, Stacia hasn't changed that much. Chip changed more. Um, but for every part of the uh, of the novel 
that was placed in tips. I had I'd gone to all those places actually before. So in my case, it was a matter of sort of, um, I, I, as far as the IRS was concerned, I was asking them to pay it forward uh, in, terms of, in terms of research. I took the deduction before the novel came out. Um, so, uh, But I knew I wanted to use this in a novel, and I knew I was going to have the opportunity one day. It just came up, lo and behold, long before, before I'd ever met Eric. Um, I had done it, so uh, so there I was having a, having a setting by serendipity uh, in mind. Which, by the way, also just to digression, if you notice that that just the music also show up very briefly in Trial by Fire. So if uh, so, if they ever if the IRS ever pulls me over and says, "Gee, you know, uh, did you use it enough?" I said, Not only did I use it enough, I used it twice. So, yeah. <laughs> This is a possibly related note, but what for each of you, what did you enjoy the most about writing this story? Well, I'm going to let Chuck answer that because he basically wrote all of it. Um, I was sort of his spiritual guiding counselor, but this book he really wrote, um, so I'm going to let him answer it. Go for it. He, he, he does. Ooh, he's a master buck passer. He really is. Um, <laughs> but for... <laughs> Well, you know, uh, you have to you have to nod to Sensei when when Sensei when, when Sensei performs the move flawlessly. Um, so uh, so thanks, Eric. Um, but we uh, we've been writing back and forth about this book. Strangely enough, from the very first time I submitted something to Eric, there's a there's a there's a little bit of a genesis story here, which was when I met Eric at Lunacon. He asked me to. to when when I when when I was able to convince him that that even though I had to publish something before, he was he might be interested in working with me. Um, the first thing I pitched him was actually the story of Mike McCarthy Jr. and uh, and Hugh Albert O'Donnell going to Trinidad, and it was largely a kind of standalone. Although I will confess that, that having looked at uh, at, at um, David Weber's writing commitment schedule, I was wondering if there might be an opportunity later on to enlarge it, given what I knew the other projects were going to be. Or were at least envisioned as being. And, uh, and lo and behold, when that started uh, turning out to be the case, Eric and I started, uh, gosh, I guess we started a fairly um, routine uh, correspondence about this novel as far back as uh, fall 2010. And uh, so for Eric to say that, yeah, I, the writing, okay, but we, but when he says spiritual guidance, he really, that's really very true. Uh, this one, the proposal went through a couple of iterations. The, a lot of folks on the bar were involved in, in uh, sort of dealing with not only what some of the stuff that appears in this novel regarding oil, oil well drilling, the different types and where and why and when. Um, so, yeah, I had, by the time I sat down to, to pen this, uh, it was very much sort of state uh, complete. I think the thing that I like the most from my point writing about it, there are two things, really, and they, they come neck and neck. One is one is very adolescent and one is very mature. I'll go with the mature first. The mature was getting a chance to write about the institution of of slavery and and impressed labor in the various forms that it took or might have taken in the new world. Um, and and really uh sort of shining a light on it and also taking a look at what the, the presence of up timers and not only their philosophies but the histories the histories of, 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 you know, what happened in the New World under this, under this 
institution uh, and and take a look at how that might in it and how it might in the economics of the new world because fundamentally it will in the economics of the new world. So that was the mature thing that I really enjoyed sort of uh, sort of sort of dealing with. Uh, and the and the adolescent thing was you know it's just plain cool to write about sailing ships in the in the in the age of of wind and cannon and um, and to to sort of immerse yourself in the in the technologies and, and the, the, the strategies at the time and how those were going to be impacted by uh, uptime, uptime technology and method, but also how uptime technology and method could, as we, as we find at the end of the book, get a heck of a big surprise from just smart sailors on the opposite side. And that was, a, that was just a huge playground that I had to hang up on. Sounds like fun. So since you brought up slavery and indentured servitude and, and bondsmen, how did you arrive at trying to figure out how this, how you were going to sort of attempt to kind of solve that issue? Well, Eric, having his background in studies not entirely unrelated to this and having uh, you know, a strong background in, in, in fair labor issues, I think it would only be natural for him to, uh, to start this one off. And how am I doing? Was that pretty good? Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Thank very you very much. Very much. Very very much. Uh, actually, um, the history of the abolition of slavery is rife with all kinds of measures similar to the ones we had our heroes take. Um, Americans tend to think of the getting rid of slavery in terms of the civil, you know, the big civil war. But the British Empire, for instance, uh, abolished slavery in 1833, um, all the way across the board. Um, and the northern United States abolished slavery gradually. Um, people don't know this, but there are actually more slaves in New York City than anywhere else at one stretch of American history. And it was in the South that it just got so entrenched that you just could not, you know, pry it loose. But, um, and eventually, you know, a very violent war was needed to get rid of it. But the idea of doing it, you know, it, I mean, there's a lot of different methods were used, but the, the kind of method that was used in the book, um, you know, it's actually not new or unusual. Um, uh, it was done in a number of places. Um, and so when, you know, Chuck advanced the idea, it seemed perfectly reasonable to me. Um, because, you know, like I said, it's been done. Um, uh, that's about all I have to say about that. I mean, I, I don't actually think that's particularly... Um, what's tricky is 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 you know would it actually work? That's always harder to gauge. Um, you know, it's just in the nature of things. You, you never really quite know. Maybe it would, but um, um, I think there's a good chance it would have. Um, so anyway, that's uh, where the idea comes from. Basically, I. Um, I don't know if you, if you ever read my novel, um, um, The Arkansas War, but I have something somewhat similar happening in there. Um, and again, it's the same kind of thing. It's uh, um, 
it's a, it's a, it's a gradual type of evolution uh, and all that, that uh, what I posit in that series is that the Jacksonians decide, you know, who never did break the slavery in the real world, but most of them weren't so they could have. And so what I posit there is that they adopt the same kind of approach that was used in, in the north, northern United States the, that, that we've got laid out um, in this novel is a variant on it. So Chuck, any thoughts? Yeah, um, for me it, it struck me that the, you know, the bottom line was this was one of those issues that no one was going to be happy with. Or rather, let's put it like this, you were going to have a bunch of people on one side which felt that it was terribly, terribly radical for a variety of reasons. And on the other side, it was going to felt that, you know, would, would accuse it of, of gradualism and, and, you know, pandering to, to an already morally, you know, bankrupt set of beliefs mm-hmm. possessed mm-hmm. by the other side. So this is, this is going to be, you know, full of a lot of people on both sides who don't like it. And that's why it was very careful to have a scene, um, through the, through the eyes of somebody who was in a perhaps unique position to see both sides. Uh, in this case, Dr. Brunzel, who's the one who sort of explains to the, uh, the Danish lady what's going on, what they're seeing here, and why this was, um, it wasn't, per- it, it's not wonderful, but it was, um, you know, it sometimes, reality is very often not choosing between the good and the bad, it's choosing between the bad and the worst. And the moment you have the institution of slavery in place, I think you're in that position, because it means that some people are invested in keeping it. They, you know, if, 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 let's put it like this. If slavery isn't making people money, they will probably not be enamored of slavery. I mean, there are certain personality types which will probably still be enamored of it, but the temptation to give it up will be very strong if you somehow would make more money not having it there. Um, so clearly, this is, you know, you can't talk about slavery in this situation without somebody putting a finger into somebody else's rice bowl. That's, and, and that automatically is going to create, um, attention, which is, which is wonderful for the novel, because, um, it is not just the naval battle that, that forms the, the, uh, if you will, the, the crux of drama in the, in the next novel, uh, in this, in this particular area. But what happens when there are interests that simply cannot be reconciled? Uh, you know, it's, it's very boring when everybody on one side is wearing all the same color hats. And uh, I think you can see pretty pretty well foreshadowed here that there's going to be, um, shall we say, a sharp and even violent uh, difference of opinion amongst uh, the Dutch and uh, and some of the other folks uh, in that in that group who, uh, who really find it quite a uh, they 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 see that this is a very lucrative uh, institution from their perspective, and that's where their thought is. Um, to me, and it was one of the things that, that I thought was the, the key, the key to whether it was believable that it would work or not, was, was how big was the rice bowl into which Trump and the, and the uptimer notions were putting their finger. And what I mean by that is, obviously everybody has just relocated to Recife and most of the slaves have not come to Recife to, to, um, to Eustatia. Uh, the, the cane sugar enterprise is not as settled there as it is Already starting to become, but still is not that heavily settled into the um, into St. Kitts to need it. If you, if and, and I'm sure Eric can speak a lot more to this than I can. The history of the importation of slaves it has it is nowhere near uh, anything like uh, in the in the following century and then the early part of the 19th. Uh, it's, it's almost sporadic at this point. A tremendous amount of work, particularly in Kitts and St. Nevis. 
is being done either by Irish staff indentured uh, servants or uh, actually in, in the, under James one uh, thirty thousand Irish were uh, were were brought into the New World not as indentured servants but as out and out slaves. Um, no no rights beneath the law for a variety of reasons. And uh, so so you have a real mixed bag there. And if but if the institution had progressed much further, um, I think it would have become harder and harder to do, and therefore less and less believable that the outcome that we're sort of evolving here could have taken place. So you mentioned that you're working on a sequel to this one. Do you have any uh, do you have any any little tidbits you can drop about that? Hmm. Well, <laughs> we are. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem, which is generally true in the series, it is probably particularly true with this line of the narrative, is that it's going to get tangled up with a lot of other things very quickly. Um, so, um, I'm trying to figure out how to explain it. Um, yes, there will be a sequel, no doubt about it. But that sequel is likely actually to um, be mixed, intertwined, let's, mm -hmm. let's put it that way, with um, lots of other parts of the series. So it will, it's not going to be um, the next project that, that we'll be, Chuck and I will be working on together. It will be, we're going to do Vatican Sanction next, and then um, we'll probably come... Well, I don't know, Chuck, which we'll have to see. We might do the Simpsons med first. I don't know. Um, then, no, we'll I don't think that. About that. <laughs> <laughs> but, All right. Okay, oh, I see what you're saying. Before this, a little, that might be a little difficult, but... As you can, as you can tell, yeah, it's going to be... It's, mm -hmm. it's unclear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, Yeah, this series by now has gotten really complex, um, and you know, figuring out exactly the order in which you're going to make everything work, you know, gets kind of tricky. Um, you know, we get readers writing into we get readers writing into us asking what the correct reading order is for 1632, and I just laugh. Yeah, I have actually posted an essay on that where I have my recommended order of reading but um yeah that's what we refer them to yeah but i mean in, honestly in some ways it's really quite arbitrary uh, and if i'm being snotty about it i'll just say well what's the right order in which to study the 30 years of war and you figure that out use the same order which you know is a little snotty i admit um but it's hard not to do it because um honestly i don't know what the answer is um it's it's difficult. There's no way around it. Um, anyway, um, um, but yeah, this series in particular um, just winds up being very hard to uh, um, explain exactly until you write it how the different stories are going to interlock with each other. Uh, once you've written it, it becomes a lot clearer. Um, but the trick, of course, is in the initial writing. Um, and I'm trying to think what I can say about 
about the next sequence without giving too many things away. But um, um, it, it, that's hard to. I can. But, I think I can put in a couple of things which aren't historical or, or story arcs of the way. We're going to find that the Spanish continue to be very, very innovative adversaries. Um, uh, we're going to uh, probably find that the uptimers will get a few more surprises. Uh, on the other hand, the uptimers are learning very quickly because every time the Spanish you know, manage to surprise them, the uptimers and their allies tend to be uh, a fairly methodical bunch. And uh, now, of course, they have a radio to communicate those things back home. So as it's one of the things that I think will be interesting, and we'll see who wins this, who wins to some degree. It's uh, the Spanish have a lot of experience and a lot of forces, and they have some very, very clever people running the show. The uptimers are terribly outnumbered. They have uh, generally better equipment, and they have a logistical base far off in Europe that the, uh, the Spanish can't really touch, but it takes a little while to uh, respond to needs and get those needs into the new world. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a race. It's a kind of uh, built-in asymmetrical warfare, and for those in the series who enjoy that sort of thing, uh, I think Eric and I can absolutely promise them that they will not be disappointed in what they find in the next book. I'll be looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, that that's quite well said. I like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's um. Oh God. Um, he's, he's laughing at my palace and bloodless marketing pitch. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, well, it's yeah, I know. It, it's um. Oh God, just uh, yeah. Look, I'm the one that has to try to have to keep track of this, and and it gets tangled up. It really does. Um. And then what happens is you get some readers get cranky, of course. Because here's the thing: there's basically two ways you can organize um, a, serial, a a really big sprawling series like this. And one way, which is the way that has been used by Robert Jordan in Wheel of Time and by George R. R. Martin in Game of, in uh, Song of Fire and Ice, is you advance the books they stay in sequence it's book one two three four five six is very clear definite sequence and um each book as it comes out advances the entire story the drawback to doing it that way is that as time goes on you get more and more subplots developing one it gets harder and harder to keep track of everything in any one book and secondly the the pace of development tends to slow and become sometimes downright glacial. Um, the other way to do it, which is the method I'm using in the 1632 series, is that, that you use a, a branching or a bush method. That, that you're not, the books beyond the initial first couple of books don't really have a definite order, but what you try to do is make each separate novel comprehensible in its own terms and fairly fast moving so that somebody can sit down and read it and understand what's happening in it. Whereas a lot of times, I know I've found with, uh, with Wheel of Time, uh, that, I, that finally I was picking up, I think it was the sixth book in a series, and I just realized I couldn't remember what was going on or why it was happening. And I would have had to go back and reread everything from the beginning, which I wasn't willing to do. Um, so, I try to make each book comprehensible in its own terms. 
But one of the drawbacks, obviously, is that some fans get cranky about it because, you know, it's like, I don't give a goddamn what, you know, Sharon Nichols is doing off in Italy. I'm interested in what Mike Stearns is doing in Saxony. And when's that novel coming out? You know, I mean, they want this novel to post that one. And, you know, it's a compromise. There's not any one definite way that's the right way to do it. There are advantages either way. Um, but you're going to, you know, some fans are going to be unhappy either way you do it. Hopefully you ever have you to, only have to visit the bar to see that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you ever have? Do you have many people fact checking you and saying, "Well, that couldn't happen." Uh, 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 oh, we uh, get. Uh, yeah, we get tons of fact checking. Um, um, but well, the the the, the 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 my preferred term is nitpicking. Um, <laughs> uh, I should say this happens on two different levels. Um, Any time we write one of these books, we you know we vet it past the the uh, got a whole group of people who are basically the main writers in the series and the editorial board, and they will vet the whole you know they'll read the books and make sure we're we're not you know screwing up some kind of conduit. So we do that um, just to make sure we're not screwing up, but. Um, uh, once that's done, um, there really aren't, the truth is, there haven't been that many major factual errors in the series. Uh, we've actually done quite well. Um, some, sure, there's always going to be some, but, um, uh, when I did the second draft of 1632, it was pretty striking how little I actually had to rewrite. Um, I, I actually thought there'd be more, but there wasn't. Um, so, um, I don't know. Overall, you know, it's, uh, I don't think it's been a big problem. That more often than not, people who think you did something wrong are usually wrong themselves. I mean, that's, that's the part about it that can really Freaking annoying. Um, yeah, I, I was wondering actually. Yeah, uh, no, really annoying. I mean, huh? I, I was I was going to speak to that in the sense not so much even of uh, technology, new technology, uh, or how things are done uh, in a material or engineering sense, but very often behavior uh, and and operational methods. For instance, uh, in, in writing this book, the, you've got two different naval ethoids that are that are sort of coming into into contact with each other and that's the 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 downtime ethos as it exists, which is in, in very, very different from uptime. And it's not even the next step of uptime that it's synergizing with. It's like two or step two or three steps removed. And what I mean by that is Simpson is coming from a post World War II American naval position. Now, you have to compare that to the fact that in sixteen thirty five historically there were no you know, the nations did not have um, even particularly well-established ranks or roles uh, on shipboard. There were some, but, but their exact the chain of command was very often uh, almost generic for ships, certainly for Navy, and they didn't even have uniforms. Uh, and uniform, uniform standards were almost unknown, and this gets right down to guns and the way the powder was milled and all the rest. So you get folks to jump on the bar, and they say, you know, and, and they'll make comments about, uh, well, you know, Simpson would have done it this way, and Simpson would have done it that way. 
I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, you know, actually, there are two reasons uh, that, that I think, that, and, and this is what I mean by it's not even so much technological, it's what I would call the human engineering component, where, where Eric and I, or Eric and the other collaborators in the series, we sit back and we say, okay, we could, you know, if we were doing a simulation, I suppose we could throw all the terms in the world and introduce all the changes in the world all at once, just the way it would be, and the and our I think our collective sense of it is, and we would utterly confuse eighty five percent of the readership, uh, who who would be no, not necessarily much more conversant with the modern, you know, let's say naval ethos than the old naval ethos. So you try to drop this in to suggest the changes that are there. Um, for instance, I, I talk about evolution uh, when you were talking about naval things, and that's a term, it's a modern term that has to do with change in formation or change in plan. Also, the gunnery, the, the gunnery instructions were very, were actually taken directly from a, a uh, an immediate post-World War II gunnery manual. And, but you have other folks, you know, saying, well, there'd be a duty watch officer here and there, and there'd be this on the deck, and that person would have binoculars for sure, and you're sitting there going, why, thou, really? <laughs> we, we have no readers if we did that. So, so there's a sort of, you know, the, 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 impo the imposition of making a fun and a navigable narrative, as well as the fact that not all the changes that uptimers could imagine are the ones that they would get, or would even be wise to make all at once, uh, is something that I think we're always, we're always potentially contending with. So you're, you're looking at folks on the bar or other commentators on, on, on the facts, so to speak, as they are, um, and, and I think very often the difference between what we do and what they very often are looking for has to do with how do you tell a good story and how do cultures in conflict, you know, or in, or in confluence, as the case may be, that not everything happens all at once according to an uptime perspective. And sometimes, uh, sometimes they have a different view, I think. Than we do. So one thing I wanted to ask you guys about was, have there been any historical sources that you found particularly helpful or that you would recommend for someone who, say they've read this novel and some of the other 1632 series, and they want to get more, they want to delve more into the history? I, I should come up with a couple really quickly. Uh, Knight seamanship, which was used for a long time, may still be in some later editions for sail handling, and sail handling and terminology is a, uh, is a is a wonderful source. I think it's been used at the Naval Academy for something like more than half a century now. Uh, there's another book I can't remember it. Uh, uh, it was about piracy actually in the in the early era of the Caribbean from 16, 1630 to 1690 or 1630 to 1735 by a, an, a former seal by the name of Fenerson Little, uh, which is uh, a gold mine. Of, uh, of accounts and, and how, and practices and usages. And one of the reasons it's really good is because if you read court documents and official reports, they're just like, just like official reports today. They're all got up to tell the big way what they want to hear. And this tends to be the personal accounts and memoirs. And the, and the difference between the two is really, really instructive. So those are the two that I, I come up with. I don't have really anything yet. Chuck did most of the research specific to this book on on the Caribbean. He worked with. Um, if you go back a few years, um, um, 
the original plan was that uh, was that David Weber was going to write this book with me, um, and then it just became clear from experience that David and I were just so busy that we couldn't get together often enough to uh, to write the books frequently enough. That's why there was like a five year stretch where before Baltic War came out, which was a sequel to 1632, and it caused a lot of problems. Uh, we had to publish Canon Law, which actually had a major event, <laughs> the escape in the tower, before it was actually shown in Baltic War. Um, and so eventually, and, and David and I also had contracts to do books in his Honor Harrington universe, and that became the priority. So eventually, David just just backed out of this this and and essentially Chuck took over for him. Um, and Chuck spent a lot of time talking with David because David had done quite a bit of, of uh, thinking about the kind of naval technology he thought they would be developing. So I, I have been sort of gazing upon this from a distance with, with benign approval. Um, and my own knowledge of has been, and the research I do is much more concentrated in other areas, and the specifics either of naval, naval technology in particular, or the Caribbean, the details of the Caribbean in general. Um, I've been actually spending more of my time reading up on stuff that's happening in Europe, and the parts of the series that I really have to, have to be directly in control of. Uh, doing this series is a lot more like conducting an orchestra in some ways than it is like, you know, performing um, and you can't do everything not when there's God what are we up to Chuck I don't know, 125, 130 authors by now I've written something in this series it's, it's an obscene number at any rate and, and if Guinness was if Guinness had an entry for this in terms of world's biggest or world's most complicated uh, I'm sure this would get it for series uh, and you know shared universe sort of thing absolutely so, Eric, I know you've you've talked before about this. It's a really complicated series, but it seems like there's starting to be a little bit of momentum towards stories happening in the new world. Are we going to see that continue? Oh yeah. Um, actually, there. Uh, 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 the next new world novel is actually finished. Uh, it's one I'm doing with Walter Hunt called The Atlantic Counter. And the first draft that I was actually written, but uh, it, it, we need to rewrite a couple big parts of it. And meantime, um, Walter is working on the first draft of the first of the two French novels I'm going to be doing with him. And that actually has to be published. That book actually has to be the next one that comes out after, well, the next one comes out is uh, Beanie's Waltz, which is coming out in, that's our schedule for November. But uh, the one after that will be the first of the of the two French novels because that depicts the beginning of the French Civil War, and there are various things that happen there that are really important to the whole universe, and I, 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 we can't jump over it. Um, so it's going to have to come out next. Um, in addition, right I, after that, all right. Have to be, huh? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just mentioning the Vatican sanction can't come out until after the first of the French book. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there's, there's actually there's actually two novels that cannot come out until until the French novel comes out. So we put the uh, the next uh, Atlantic Canon on the back burner for the moment. Uh, in addition, Ivor Cooper 
has got a book out that came out in January, uh, 1636, uh, The Seas of Fortune, which is un entirely written by him. And those have two lines of stories, and one on the West Coast and one in uh, northeastern uh, South America. Um, we are going to, we are putting together material for a New World anthology. Uh, Herb Sacklox has an ebook out called The Danish Game, which, which follows what the Danes are doing in Hudson Bay and up north. So yes, um, but the way in which these stories will come out will parallel the way in which I envision the series spreading into the New World, which is that it's, 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 it's kind of a lot of hurly burly. And the left hand often doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Um, so we now have the Japanese settling the West Coast, which uh, California, which did not obviously happen in real history, and all kinds of things like that are going to happen. Um, but it won't, because of the distance and the smaller resources involved, it won't have the same kind of, I don't know how to put it, there's a certain unifying effect to what happens in Europe just because things are close enough together and, and you know, if there's a major development in, in, in the Germany, then it's going to affect almost everything else pretty quickly, whereas in the New World, it's it's a lot more um, disconnected. And then in addition, there are two novels underway, one of which I'm doing, Griffin, Griffin Barber, which takes place in India, um, uh, Mughal India, and the other, which is Ivor Cooper and I are just starting, which takes place in China. So the series is spreading out across the world, although the center of it remains in, in Europe. So a question for you, Chuck, since you did so much of the writing on this one. Did, you, did anything surprise you as you were starting to write this story or finishing it up? Were any, any character developments that you didn't foresee? Um, what what happened that I guess I didn't I I wasn't looking at at first because because the the, the dramatic core with which I started was uh, like I said not connected with what ultimately became the mainstream of the novel I had the I had the stuff having to do with uh, Hugh Albert O'Donnell and uh, Michael McCarthy Jr. I had that and all the places and all the players and that. Pretty, pretty well done in my head. I, I knew I knew what I had done already, and I knew where I was going. When Eddie Cantrell comes in as the commander of the expedition, and therefore the, the primary viewpoint character in the novel, that brought in some some new considerations, and and that brought in the consideration of his of his wife, and his wife brought in the consideration of it is very unlikely that a, a woman of that time would be asked or expected to travel alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that meant I had to find uh, partners for her, and the and the the process of finding out who Leonora, her sister, was, and uh, then uh, and uh, uh, I can't think of her name now. The uh, yeah, right. It's only it's only my uh, the, the the one who's uh, uh, the, the the daughter of Anne White, uh, Sophie White. That's it. Um, these were these were new characters for me, and uh, reading about them and learning about them was again a, a classic example of the fascination of the series. Um, how, in the case of in the case of uh, Sophie, like uh, she she would have been dead by now, also um, for for a variety of other reasons. Uh, but because of changes, uh, the sort of the butterfly effect, I guess, uh, here she is alive. 
in a very, very different historic place. Also, Leonora wound up being married to Corpus Schulfeld, who was sort of like the quizling, if you will, of Danish history. Um, and uh, and these, this change in their lives uh, was a was a, a major change for me um, in terms of it, it sort of, basically what happened is it added to the weight of the book in terms of the length because I had these fascinating characters who were also essential characters uh, in terms of introducing uh, viable uh, viable uh, woman's viewpoint. Um, and then because of the people that they would naturally be interacting with, this brought me to Dr. Frangel. Uh, and this entire, this entire, uh, sort of reality that, that transports up with Trump, uh, social reality from, from the people. And, uh, so, so I never started out in the book knowing that there was going to be a concern with medicine and, and women's issues and court issues and the, the changing role of women in the new world. And, uh, and how they're on the front lines in the, in one of the, the penultimate battle scenes of the, uh, of the book. And that was unanticipated by me and was just, uh, you know, that probably becomes a close third of things that were just a huge amount of fun to write. And in that case, a big surprise too. So, good. It's, it's, it keeps the characters keeping you on your toes there. Absolutely. So, we've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to get both of you to kind of talk a little bit, if you can, about what you're working on now. Okay. Uh, um, who do you want to go first? Well, why don't you start, Eric? Okay. Uh, right now, I'm finishing up a novella that I owe Bill Fawcett for uh, his next Clan of the Claw anthology. It's, I'm overdoing that. As soon as that's done, which should be within a week or two, I've got to do another way overdue project, which is I got a, a, a I write a novel I've, I've been under contract with for seven years with Mike Resnick. Um, that is called uh, The Gods of Sagittarius, and it's a straight space opera. Um, once that's done, then the next direct writing I'll be doing will be the next um, um, solo novel in the 1632 series, which will be the direct sequel to um, um, Saxon Uprising. But I do a lot of collaborative writing, and collaborators have a way of, of disrupting my schedule. Um, so... Dave Freer has already just a couple of weeks ago turned over to me the first draft of the next series of Alexandria book. That's the, the series of Star of Shadow of the Lion. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave and Misty and I have normally worked on those, the three of us together, but from now on we're just working two of, the, two of us on each one because getting the three of us together is kind of cumbersome. So this is just between Dave Freer and I. Uh, that one's called the, All the Plagues of Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got to work with Walter whenever he's ready for me to on the French novel because that'll be the next 1632 series novel that'll be published sometime next summer. I do have a novel coming out in February that I do write for called Castaway Planet, which is something of a sequel to the Boundary Trilogy. Um, and then Grant Book is at seven is coming out in April, and I've got to write a story for that. Um, and then, um, and, you know, there are 1632 series novels underway. 
with um, um, Paula and Gorg are writing a sequel to the Kremlin Games they're pretty well into. Um, I mentioned Griff Barber has got quite a bit. He's got about 90,000 words written of this uh, uh, 1632 series novel set in Mughal, India. Um, I'm doing a completely new project. It's uh, urban fantasy. Uh, it's a com com uh, uh, combined police procedural urban fantasy that I'm doing with uh, Alistair Kimball, and he's finished the first draft of that. So whenever I get the time, I've got to I've got to do a rewrite of that. But that's got to be done. Um, and I think I'm going to stop there because um, that's already what six seven projects. Uh, Makes me tired just listening to you, Eric. So what about you, Chuck? What do you have coming up? Coming up and working on are actually kind of two different things. Uh, I just got, uh, for anybody who follows any of my stuff on Facebook, uh, people know that my biggest adventure in the, in the past couple of weeks has not been being nominated for the Nebula, but getting home from it. Um, yeah. uh, so uh, <laughs> yeah. as I'm recovering from that, um, uh, this week, uh, I'm, I'm at, uh, I, I get almost no writing done this week because the, the, but I'm not complaining because, uh, the Compton Cook Award, uh, I'm going to Baltimore this weekend and they've got me scheduled in addition, you know, when, when you're, when you're lucky enough to be one of those, those folks being honored that way, they want to put you in the schedule all over the place and I definitely want to help them out and I'm going to be very, very busy and then two days after that, I'm in the car to go up to New York to be with Eric. Uh, where at the, the Javits Center in New York, it's Book Expo America, uh, where we're signing, uh, pretty much the release of the, um, of the Caribbean novel, uh, Commander Control in the West Indies. So after that, I resume breathing, and as soon as <laughs> I reoccupied, um, essentially, uh, at that point, I have a bunch of things that need doing in kind of quick order. There's a piece of, uh, short fiction, a novelette length, I believe, that is, um, uh, called the Sand Beauty. Uh, it needs a little bit of adaptation yet. That's going to be on Bane.com uh, in the months before the release of Trial by Fire, which is the second book in the Tales of the Terran Republic series, which uh, started out with Fire with Fire, which is the one that's, that has received these really very humbling honors at, at the, the Nebula nomination and the Compton Cook Awards. Um, and uh, when, I'm, when I'm done with that, at the same time, um, for folks who are interested in, in that universe, uh, there's bonus material that is coming out in between, and uh, Tony and I have been discussing exactly how that's going to come out, where that's going to be placed. It's about 20,000 words worth of it, and I'm also trying to wrangle a blueprint together from some wonderful graphic folks in, uh, in the UK who, got, who became real fans just of the technology they saw in the first book. And uh, so they said, can we, uh, can we show what a ship carrier looks like? And I said, go ahead. And they said, well, we need your help. I said, well, that seems reasonable. Okay. Um, and that's a kind of big project because <laughs> the ship carrier is almost a mile long, and we're doing it in detail. So, yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit absorbent. Um, then uh, I'm getting, and while all that's going on, as soon as I'm done uh, with, with putting um, uh, Thing of Beauty together for Bane.com, then I turn around and I get to work with my, my first, uh, from a lot of being my first collaborator, Frank Steve White, on uh, the next book in the Starfire series called Imperative, um, which I think he is going to, I, I will give only this much of a vague teaser. Um, if you thought you knew the direction things were going to go, possibly from the last book, Extremis, you will be wrong. 
Uh, things are changing. They're changing in a big way, and Steve and I are are really excited to be writing this book. Um, after that, as soon as I'm done with that, I spin around and do the next book in the um, in the uh, Tales of the Terran Republic, uh, the sequel to uh, uh, Trial by Fire, uh, which is tentatively titled um, uh, Raising Cain, and uh, that's that's still in exactly what that's going to be. It's still something I'm chatting with Tony. And uh, that's pretty much that's going to keep me busy to at least I would say close to the end of the year. Uh, well, probably not. And then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to write Vatican Sanctions. So it's it's ready to be loaded in the chamber as soon as there's a, a space for it in the uh, in the Bain publishing schedule. And after that, well, you know that's looking far enough out. <laughs> so the two of you are going to be together at BEA the at the end of May, and Chuck, you're going to be at Balticon over Memorial Day weekend. Yes, sir. I'm doing three, three this year. Uh, I'm going to be at DuckCon on June 6th through the 8th. That's in uh, Chicago, uh, Wheeling, Illinois. Um, September, end of September, I'll be at FenCon in Dallas, Texas. And beginning right back the very next week, uh, beginning of October, October 3rd and 5th, I'll be at Necronomicon in Tampa, Florida. I'm the author guest of honor at FenCon and Necronomicon. And then I'll be at Manicon next May, but that's a year away. So no point. Are either of you coming to HonorCon at the end of October down here in Raleigh? Um, I didn't even know there was an HonorCon down there. Uh, yes. So, so I, did not, I, I didn't realize they were holding I mean, I was at Honor. Hmm. I thought they had it this year already. I was at it. Okay, so mine, obviously, is, as you were, as you kind enough to, to re-mention, Laura, um, Balticon, it's a very, uh, Memorial Day weekend, uh, BEA Javits, uh, the, that May, June, uh, transitional weekend. I'm also, I'm gonna be, um, not just on the, uh, up there doing the promotions for, um, for, uh, for Cantrell, but I'm gonna be, uh, doing some signing uh, at the SFWA table, both on the Thursday before and Saturday after, which is also BookCon, I believe they call it. Um, and I'm doing a couple of area appearances and radio shows. Um, then I don't do anything until LibertyCon, uh, which, which for those of you who are listening uh, to this podcast, you know that that really should be called BainCon. Um, it is it is a, a great con uh, for for mm-hmm. folks who love Bain and Bain authors because there's just tons of us there in Chattanooga. Um, I do Worldcon the second week in August. Uh, I am probably going to be at uh, at DragonCon, and people have been testing me uh, to tell them what what would the uh, what would the Commonwealth naval uniforms look like because. Because I don't think they're going to get it in the parade this year, and I've been kind of amused by this question, but I had to give it some thought. But I, I hope to be at DragonCon. I am then doing, um, I'll be at the Baltimore Book Festival, I think in September that is. I will be doing Top Plays in October. I will be doing World Fantasy in November, and um, also, uh, which is in, uh, in Washington, D.C., Crystal City. And I will be doing WindyCon and seeing, uh, you're not going to be at WindyCon? Eric? Oh, that's your right. Yeah, no, I, I forgot. I forgot. I, yeah, I'll be at WindyCon. I'm there every year. Um, I yeah. tend to forget it because it's just, it's my local con. I just pretty much go every year. Yeah, I'll be there. So, and I think that's, that's it. And, and so, um, most of my, most of my intense con was, was right now here in May because it was literally four back to back. Marcon, Nebula, 
Balkan and um, and then DEA. So my family has forgotten what I look like, which 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 for for me is a very sad thing, but for for them maybe an object of desire. So I uh, I need to reinsert myself into uh, into the family presence uh, for the rest. Year, I think. Sounds like a plan. Well, I just wanted to thank you both for, for taking the time to talk with us. All right, thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye bye. The book is 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, and it is now out in hardcover and ebook format at booksellers everywhere. And now here is part nine of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy. The type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at that. But now, in the hardscrabble farmland of Dust Bowl, California, little Faye has watched her grandfather, who has the gift of traveling, teleportation that is, as he's brutally gunned down by assassins. Faye discovers that she is also a traveler, far more powerful than her grandfather. She's determined not to get caught by whoever or whatever killed her grandfather, and just as determined to one day exact her revenge. Here's Bronson Pinchot with Part 9 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. The 50-millimeter Russian long dug a divot in the dirt, but the girl was already gone. Goddamn travelers, he spat. It was a good thing most of them died young, because he hated them especially hard. He checked his side... A little whore had got him good, but not good enough. It took more than getting stabbed to hurt him, but it sure made him mad. Carefully scanning back and forth, waiting for the girl to reappear, he picked the small piece of machinery off the ground. He'd been briefed enough to know that this was a part of what he was after. Maybe the most important piece even, but it wasn't all of it, and his orders had said to bring it all back. He carefully stuffed the piece into one bloodied pocket. Next he checked the old man's body, but he didn't have it on him. He must have given it to the girl. His remaining men caught up a moment later. Have you found it? he shouted. The men shook their heads. Find it or I'll kill you all, he bellowed. There's a girl. She's a traveler, too. Find her and put a bullet in her. What are you waiting for? Move! Terrified, the goons went back to searching. Better be afraid, fucking pussies. One man hesitated. You're bleeding, Mr. Maddie? The big man just growled at him. No, really? Uh, what do you want me to do with the bodies? Maddie scowled. He'd lost two men to that damn Portuguese and one to his brat. 
Drag them inside. We'll burn everything before we go. That's what they get for being weak. Now quit jawing and find that girl. Frustrated, he stomped over to the dead Portuguese, lifted his Lamat Schofield and pumped the rest of the hot-loaded slugs into the body. Then he thumb-cocked the second hammer and gave the old man the 12-gauge barrel just to be sure. He rapidly broke open his empty gun. The spent moon clip kicked out automatically under spring pressure, and he stuffed another moon clip of cartridges into the cylinder and a single shotgun shell into the overbarrel, then snapped it shut and shoved the beast back into his shoulder holster. The bloody mess he'd caused made him smile. He sat on a bale of hay and waited for the bleeding to gradually stop. Traveling Joe was dead, but without all the goods, the chairman wasn't going to be happy. Faye watched the one-eyed man from under the overturned trough halfway across the pasture. He yelled at his men, shot Grandpa a bunch more times, and then took a seat. Cows had sensed her, and, always curious, were gathering around the trough. The metal was old and had rusted through in places, and she kept her eye against one of those holes, spying until she could no longer see through all the Holsteins. She couldn't stop crying. Her foot hurt. She'd traveled without checking first. Grandpa had been gone for all of ten seconds before she had violated his first commandment. She knew that there was something stuck in her heel. Maybe a piece of straw, maybe a rock, and the pain was almost unbearable. Every pulse of her heart felt like somebody was driving a nail through her bones with a carpenter's hammer. But that wasn't why she was crying. Faye kept Grandpa's leather bag clutched to her chest. It was splattered with his blood. The pain made her want to just close her eyes and curl up into a ball, but she didn't know what time it was, and she didn't know how soon it would be until the rest of the family came back from town. If these men were still here, then she knew that she would have to try to stop them before they could hurt her family, but she didn't know what to do. And she was so very afraid. Finally, the pain had grown too much to bear. She kicked her filthy boot off and drew her bare foot into a shaft of sunlight. Faye grimaced when she saw what it was. One of those big, black, crunchy beetles, the kind that was so tough that you could stomp on them and if the dirt was soft, they would just pop back up alive. Its back half was fused into the flesh of her heel, its front legs and mandibles still thrashing. There was no hesitation. She just wanted it out. Biting her lip, she unfolded her pocket knife and started cutting. It hurt too bad, so she pulled off her bandana, rolled it tight, and stuck it in her mouth to bite down on so the one-eyed man wouldn't hear her scream, and went back to digging. Tears poured from her eyes, but she forced herself to keep going. The beetle ruptured, squirting a thick white juice that quickly mixed with her own blood. She knew she had to be thorough. After a few seconds of carving... The beetle was gone. She had a hole that hurt so bad she could barely think. But she felt immensely better. She stuffed her bandana into the wound and held it there. The cows had moved enough for her to see again. The big man had stood, lit a cigar, and then used his lighter to casually set the haystacks on fire before wandering off. A minute later, the barn was burning too, and she could see black smoke rising from where the house should be. She waited until she saw the dust from the cars as they drove back up the road.
Then she waited longer just to make sure it wasn't a trick. Finally, Faye crawled out from under the trough and limped across the pasture to the burning ruins of the only real home she'd ever known. The gray-eyed girl vowed never to cry again. Chapter 4 I do not know why Almighty God saw fit to give to man, within this very decade, magics of the elements and a quickening of the mind, powers beyond reason and comprehension, and spells of energy in the spirit when we were already so poised to destroy ourselves on our own. We entered tumultuous times. Left to our own devices, I believe that I could stay this nation's course to hold this union firm. But now I fear. Only five years have passed since the magicians began to appear seemingly at random from our people, and I know not where this path will lead. Oh, why, Lord, did you see fit to give that accursed Stonewall Jackson the strength of ten? Abraham Lincoln Document discovered in the Smithsonian Archives. Date unknown. Merced, California Faye's foot hurt with every step, but she was a girl on a mission and she had a train to catch. Gilbert Vieira, Grandpa's son, who was really more like an older brother to her than anything, had found Faye passed out in the yard. He'd gotten her foot washed out with iodine and stitched shut before she had even come to. The law had gotten there soon after, but the sheriff had been useless. Merced County was a sleepy place, and a murder investigation was over their head. Nobody knew the three dead men, and it didn't help that they'd all been burned along with the Vieira's home. A few people at Potter Field had seen the one-eyed man arrive, but no one knew who he was only that he had chartered a flight from back east and the others had been waiting for him to arrive. The law was on the lookout, but somehow she knew he would evade them easily. She was bitter, angry, and alone. The family was gone. With the farm ruined, there was nothing left for them in California. The land, cows, and equipment would be sold and they would go to work on relatives' farms. Gilbert had asked Faye to come with them, but she knew that the one-eyed man was still out there and she couldn't bear to put the others in danger. So now she found herself at the train station, limping along the platform, ticket in hand, her worldly possessions in a satchel tied behind her back, and Grandpa's little pouch under her shirt. It was no longer that odd for a young woman to travel on her own, and even if it had been, she wouldn't have let that stop her. She was going to take care of Grandpa's dying wish. Gilbert had wanted to help, but he had a young wife and four small children, now homeless, counting on him. He had not known about the pouch, nor had he ever heard his father talk about anything from his past that would suddenly cause a gang of killers to show up on their doorstep. Gilbert had given her the huge sum of $240, which was all of the family's savings he dared spare, it represented a fortune to Faye and was nearly half the cost of an automobile. The first few dollars went to purchase the train ticket to San Francisco, and then another ten was spent at the hardware store for a used Ivor Johnson revolver and a box of fifty thirty-two S and W cartridges. The owner had sold tools to Grandpa for twenty years and promised her that it worked fine 
But she went behind the shop and shot two cylinders worth of ammunition into an old stump to make sure. Grandpa had taught her how to use a shotgun, but the revolver was a lot harder to aim. It was loud and kind of scary, but she hit wood most of the time. The stubby little gun fits snugly in the pocket hidden in the pleats of her traveling skirt. She just knew she would see the one-eyed man again, and when she did, she was going to pretend he was that stump behind the hardware store. Grandpa's bag had a strange mechanical implement inside. It was a bunch of metal cylinders twisted together inside a wire frame. It looked like it was part of something bigger, like an engine. The mystery object fit in the palm of her hand, and she couldn't understand what could possibly make it worth killing people over. There was a hole in the top where the other part she had lost had probably gone, and a slot in the bottom where it had to connect to something bigger. A few words had been stamped on the back. N. Tesla, 1908. Wardenclyffe. Geo. Tell. M.K. One. Faye listened to the radio. She knew that Tesla was the brilliant cog inventor who had designed many incredible things, including the amazing peace ray that had ended the Great War and that kept all nations at peace today. The news said that the rays had made it so that there never could be a big war again. Maybe Grandpa's device was part of a peace ray? The radio had always talked about those things in hushed tones. She had never seen one, but knew there were mighty fortress towers on the coasts, guarded by hundreds of soldiers and fleets of balloons. But how had Grandpa got a piece of one? All he had ever done was milk cows. There had been one other thing in that bag, a scrap of old paper with a few words, a rough map, and an address in San Francisco. She did not know who J. Pershing, B. Jones... R. Southunder or S. Christensen were supposed to be, but Gilbert had told her that the Presidio was some sort of army base right on the ocean. The train pulled into the Merced station nearly twenty minutes late, and Faye boarded, alone but determined. Faye did not know exactly what she was going to do when she got to the spot on the map, but she would figure it out when she got there. She was Portuguese now and Grandpa had always told her what brave explorers their people had been. That was part nine of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a creeping barrage of shielding cannon fire for a desert island invasion of barbecuing salty dogs cooking up ribs and thanks for Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, authors of 1636, Commander Cantrell, the West Indies. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 